0: Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining me today as we continue our series called The Great Awakening, Living in the Light of Revelation. We've already been on quite a journey, and today we're going to step into the type of imagery in Revelation that uh, that gets a lot of attention. The imagery that's fun to draw and place in study Bibles and in end times posters, but is a little bit more difficult to unpack and understand uh, what it is calling us to as Christ followers. Now, chapter six in Revelation is the opening of the first six seals placed on the scroll that we read about in chapter five, a scroll that holds the attention of all of creation, held by God and containing the final judgments, good and bad, of God for his creation. And as the world waits with anticipation, wondering how things are going to unfold, the Lamb of God, the risen Son of God, the Christ, the long-awaited one, Takes the scroll and begins to unseal it. Now, as I've mentioned before, this is often where series on Revelation end. <laughs> Up till now, most of what I've I've shared about Revelation is not really contested much. There seems to be consensus across denominations and generations and scholars on the meaning so far of what we've looked at. But but now we're about to see the images and symbolism really kind of take off. So. Before we jump into the text, I want to remind all of us of some of the rules of engagement with Revelation. I think it's important to do this every once in a while in this series. So as we engage Revelation, we need to be able first to humbly say my view is not the only possible view. I'm not saying that there's not a right or wrong view. What I'm saying is that in light of the fact that theologians and scholars and archeologists have always and continue to debate on what some of the symbolism represents, when some of the book took place, uh, how much is still to take place and to what degree, if that's an ongoing conversation, the hubris that one has to have to say that they hold the only proper way of interpreting revelation is rather incredible. There's so many different ways of looking at Revelation, different views. There's the the preterist, the historicist, the futurist dispensationalist, the idealist, not to mention all those who, who don't feel comfortable with any of those, but only maybe in a mix of them and, and, and have more of an eclectic way of interpreting Revelation. So does that mean that we don't try? Well, no, the book was meant for our discipleship, so... We look and we dig, but we we do so with humility. And that's the second rule of engagement. We engage with humility. If we are unable to read Revelation with a level of uncertainty, we will read into it rather than take out of it. So we need to be aware of interpreters who have big questions to even the smallest questions that Revelation asks. One rule of thumb when understanding Scripture is that we can't be silent where Scripture is loud, but we also must not be loud where Scripture is silent, or at least where it whispers. I've often said to my, to my children, so that they can keep themselves from painting themselves in a corner, with something that they know for sure to be true. I'll often say, are you 100% sure or are you 95% sure? Or are you 75% sure? Because if you leave room for that 5% or that 25%, pride will have less of a hold on you if you are proven wrong, and you'll be more likely to be willing to concede. We need to read Revelation with an open mind. Be willing to admit when our interpretation is wrong or off, and be prepared to change our view of the biblical evidence, wherever it points, Uh, and often maybe in a different direction. I, I tell you, this has been very helpful for me. It's been liberating for me, actually. And I will say, without a doubt, I will say that I'm 100% sure that as many come with, that many come with different backgrounds to this communal engagement with Revelation. Some will disagree with me, and I might frustrate some of you. And, And even more frustrating to some will be when you tell me how wrong I am, and I will say, possibly and I don't get in a huff. But be assured, please be assured, I will be doing my best to be true to the text given us and the many resources that I have at my disposal to interpret the best I can and and to interpret soberly, as soberly as I can. We must engage with humility. Thirdly, and connected to this, we need to remember that Revelation was written for us, but it was not written to us. The imagery we find in Revelation, the imagery we we look at today in chapter six and the imagery we find in the rest of the book would have made sense to its original audience the seven churches and the first century church under the strong weight of the roman empire and asking the question how long o lord it would have made sense to them gordon fee says it this way he says as with the epistles the primary meaning of the revelation is what john intended it to mean which in turn must also have have been something his readers could have understood it to mean so Our best hope of understanding what Revelation means for us is to understand what it meant for its original audience. So we can't ignore the first century and just ask what God wants to say to us today through Revelation. That is a a sure, that's sure to mean a misrepresentation based more on current news stories rather than what John was trying to say to the churches. And that is always the work of us who want to know how we ought to respond to the words of scripture anywhere. What did scripture mean to its original audience? That's an important question to ask when we read any text. Scripture was written for us, but it was not written to us. And finally, and then we'll jump into the text. This is maybe the most important. If our study is simply academic, we miss the point. It's not just about gaining knowledge. We need to let it shape our faith. As followers of Jesus, the risen lamb, revelation is a call for allegiance to the lamb and his methods. And we've said before, to call ourselves Christian is first and foremost to make a political statement. It is also a call to, to not fear or give allegiance to the powers or the temptations of the world because they will surely end. Thirdly, as Jesus' followers, Revelations is a call to not give up hope in the midst of suffering because sin and suffering will find its end and its, and its perpetrators and powers will be judged. And guys, followers, as followers of Jesus, it is a call, all of Revelation is a call to be transfixed by the Lamb on the cosmic throne. So my hope is that as we continue our study, our hearts would find strength and and a centering in the truth of God's sovereignty. So that we can echo the psalmist. I love Psalm 46. It says, God is our refuge and he's our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains may be moved into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. See, that, that's the kind of hope that Revelation is trying to bring to the church, that it's trying to bring to you and I when times seem very troubling. So, with all of that said, let us look at Revelation chapter 6. And today we're going to look at verses 1 to 8. And this is what it says Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked. And behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red, and its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Well, good night, kids. Sweet dreams. (laughs) Well, this should be fun. So let's look at these four riders of the first four seals, known endearingly as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, many don't know this, but apparently they were supposed to be five horsemen of the apocalypse, but one couldn't make it. You know, that may may not be true. But let's look at these, these first four seals, the four horsemen. Uh, Notice that each one is is kind of introduced by one of the four creatures. We've heard about previously that these four creatures who worship around the cosmic throne, they're all making these announcements in verses 1, 3, 5, and 7. They make these proclamations. Now, as I mentioned before, these four creatures represent the four corners of the earth. When they are mentioned in Revelation, they seem to imply that the entire earth is being represented or covered. So having them introduce these four horsemen seem to imply that what these horsemen are bringing is something that affects all of creation. There's no escape. And in all of these, we need to be careful because the question we often ask is, are these simply the the works of God on humanity? Are they something he's allowing? Or are they the result of sin? And the answer to all of those is yes. (laughs) There, There seems to be an ongoing tension in scripture of God saying to his creation, this is the way to life. And his creation often says, we've got this, thank you very much. Since Adam and Eve, humanity has been happy to have the benefits of a king and the benefits of his kingdom, but no interest in him as a king. And forgetting that God holds all of creation together by his word, we often tend to say, we don't need you. Having no idea what the implications of a world without God's sustaining power looks like, without God's grace and mercy. And there seems to be moments, big and small, in big and small ways, that God says, I will show you. I will give you what you want, but not completely because that would mean complete destruction. I will show you what it is like when I do not hold back the powers of darkness and the powers of sin and we see We see a hint of this in, in Romans chapter one. Paul is writing and speaking to those who have, who have suffered because of their lack of interest in following and acknowledging God in Romans chapter one. Verses 28 to 32, it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to, debased, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents hear that one, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. See, Apostle Paul seems to imply that, that God at times will release us to do as we please and that this brings about judgment on our sin. Is that built into the way creation functions? Certain decisions bring pain and suffering? Yes. Is it God allowing it? Yes. It's a consequence of of our own decisions. Yes. We see this kind of thing playing out in the four horsemen. First, we have the white horse. Revelation 6, 1 to 2. As we've read. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. It says the the first of the creatures, and this happens through this text, the first creature said, come. Now some translations actually say, come and see. And I think that's actually helpful here. I think that's what's implied. This has been the theme of Revelation. John is continually asked to come and see. He's continually asked to come and look and behold. So I think context maybe points to the creature not telling the horseman to come forth, but John to come and see. And you'll notice that each time the creature says come or come and see, what happens next? Well, in three of these four times, we read that John looked and behold, he listened. He came and he saw. Each rider is on a horse, which implies war. In biblical time, most people did not ride horses just to get around. They usually rode donkeys or maybe camels. But in the mind of every reader would be the idea of warriors on horses. Now, in the first century, the Parthians were known as those who did great battle on horseback. And not only that, but their weapon of choice and expertise was a bow. They were known, in fact, for their ability to use bows while riding. Uh, and not only riding, but they were taught themselves how to ride backwards so that they could fire on, an arrow on people while they were being chased. In the past, they would often fake retreat so that they could fire on armies. In the past, they defeated the armies many times their size, four times their size because of these tactics. The Parthians were feared by the Romans and by all those who trusted Romans in power. In fact, only three decades before John wrote the Apocalypse, the Roman army had lost a horrible drawn out war to the Parthians. They were feared even when they weren't seen. When I grew grew up in the eighties, there were movies like The Ruskies and Red Dawn and War Games that kept reminding us of an unseen but very possible threat during the Cold War. The Russians were out there somewhere, ready to push a button and start World War III. Well, in the first century, the Russians in the Roman world were the Parthians. While Rome proclaimed their ability to enforce peace everywhere, those in the empire knew that the threat of the Parthians was always there. Conquest from the outside was always a concern. The white horsemen would have conjured up the fact that fear of outside forces is always present. War always seems at the door. The fact that the character is given a crown, probably tells us two things. First, there's always the continual threat of other nations or kings conquering. Secondly, the fact that the crown is given tells us that this horse's power, this horseman's power is limited and nothing is being done outside God's plan or power or vision. Next, another of the four creatures comes out. Verse 3 says, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. So what's going on with this red horse? Well, it's no surprise that red represents blood. It represents warfare. The sword is used as a symbol of war over a hundred times in scripture, just as a symbol of war. And, And often it applies civil war, which was considered the worst kind of war. So not just war out there, but war within our own gates, within our own families. This rider is permitted to take peace from from each one so that they slay one another. That's something that sin does. It doesn't just make enemies of the people out there. It makes enemies of those next to us. And sometimes very quickly, and it, it can be very vicious sometimes, the way we explode at each other. A few months ago... I I had just finished a lunch meeting with someone, and as I was pulling out of the restaurant parking lot, I had missed the fact that there was no stop sign for the traffic coming my way, and so I pulled out, cutting someone off in traffic. Well, in in half a second, this man, who, who looked a lot like me, same age, same similar hair, Line, uh, leaned on his horn and was yelling profanities and threatening to hurt me, spewing his, fu- his food everywhere, uh, going red with rage. And I thought, how could my small infraction, a mistake, it was a mistake, but, but not close to causing an accident, how could it cause so much animosity and venom in this person? And I was shaken. I thought, this man is on the verge of leaping from his car and doing damage to me. Why? Because there's something going on deeper than my minor infraction that made me his enemy so quickly. So I got out of my car and I said to this guy, David Wood, I will be talking to Pastor Mark about this. No, it didn't happen. But, but that, guy, that guy's not my enemy. I've, I've never met him before. But there's something at work in us that naturally wants to draw lines and make enemies of each other. Daryl Johnson says it this way. He says, As evil seeks to assert itself against the kingship of the Lamb, it generates civil strife. It generates war. Spiritual evil, the worst kind there is, always eventually reverts to physical violence. The next horse is a black horse. It says in verse five, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I came, I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four cre- living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. The black horse seems to represent famine, having to weigh every little bit of food in scarcity And in this, in the the numbers that we hear, the the prices for, for very basic everyday food are 15 times the usual price. A denarius was a day's wages and a quart of wheat, or for those who could not afford wheat, three quarts of barley are the food that one person needs for a day. But if you have a family, a wife, children, it's nowhere near enough to sustain a family. And this is what conquering and this is what war do. Again, on a, on a global scale or on a local level, it robs us of life. It brings injustice. Famine follows war, and often famine takes more than the war itself. But there seems to be a mercy here in this text. The, the voice from among the four living creatures says, Do not harm the oil or the wine. Even in the midst of this judgment and being left to our own devices, God shows mercy. For crops of barley or wheat to be wiped out would mean you lost a year of production. But for olive trees and grapevines to be wiped out, it could mean up to 17 years of waiting to get back to the same level of production. And for Asia Minor, these were also products for export, which helped sustain the economy of the, of the area. So even in God leaving us to the the natural outcomes of our sin, this seems to represent there's there's a limited judgment, not an end to everything. There's still hope. Spare the wine and spare the oil. Then we have the pale horse in verse seven and eight. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, and I looked and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed after him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. Again, not the entire earth, to kill with sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. It says uh, a pale horse, literally a green horse. The Greek word here is, is kind of gross. It's actually the, the color associated with the color of a corpse. Death is coming. It's fall. It comes with all of these other things. Again, to to see these as chronological happenings, I think, is, is non-apocalyptic. It, it, it's not part of the genre, and it makes it far more difficult to interpret. These events are all connected to each other, happening simultaneously in some ways. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Each of these These horsemen bring with them the consequences of sin and the rejection of the lamb and his reign. Death is not separate from the others. It is the destiny of sin. The telos of sin. The ultimate goal of sin is death. The first four of the seven seals in the scroll, these these four horsemen, given permission by the lamb, seem to represent a chain of events that human history has known all too well. Conquest a lack of peace between us and our neighbor, death in war, economic injustice, famine, disease. The the point here, the point of all of this kind of imagery, whether it's in the New or the Old Testament, and there's plenty of it, is to repent. These are like mini judgments. They're meant to save us from a greater judgment yet to come, which we will find later in Revelation. And it's not just, hey, Rome, repent. It's not just, hey, world, you better repent. Can we please stop looking out there? It is for all to repent. There's a, there's a sense here in this text that, that no one escapes the effects of humanity running free. Free. So what do we make of all this? When, when will all this happen? It always happens. <laughs> this is, this kind of, these kinds of events have happened since the resurrection of Christ. This is the stuff of life. This is the culmination of a world hell-bent on ignoring God. It happens on an individual level, a cultural level, a national level, and it happens on a global level. When we as humanity deny the lamb on the throne, we will find these forces running rampant. When we deny Christ in our lives, we will be conquered by our whims, our angers and our fears. We'll be restless. We'll be without peace. We will, we will explode in anger at the smallest things, quickly making our neighbor our enemy. When we do not love God, we don't love our neighbors as ourselves, injustice reigns. The poor suffer. Death follows. Physical, emotional, and spiritual death reigns. But what pushes up against this kingdom? We'll, we'll learn this more as we go. The answer to the, the reign of sin and death. And a world bent on destruction is Christ's kingdom expressed through his church, you and me. A new kind of community that not only does not have to live in fear in light of these events, but that is actually a spirit-filled force against them, displaying the way to life. This stuff we're reading about and learning about, this, this is rough stuff because we see it every day. We, we see the results of sin in our world in, in every tweet and every news stream. This should break our hearts. People who follow the Lamb of life should be heartbroken at the reign of death, even if it's just for a time. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, verse 22, For we know that the whole creation, all of creation, us included, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of of our bodies revelation was not written to rome and its caesars it wasn't written as a as a warning or as a threat to be wielded it was written to the church so that we would not give up hope nothing happens outside of the lamb's view that means that those who belong to the lamb have have this vision to bring a message of life in the midst of death now we don't take the imagery of the four horsemen Outside of the entirety of Revelation or the entirety of the gospel of Jesus, nothing can cause anxiety more than to think that war and famine and destruction, that there's no end to these things. That there's no limit given to these things. But Jesus says they will have their time and then I will say no more. A crown is given to the rider on the white horse for a time. But Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords and his reign is eternal. A great sword was wielded by the rider on the red horse to steal peace for a time, but Jesus is the Prince of Peace and he will come to reign in perfect peace. A pair of scales was given to the rider on the black horse, but Jesus will come with true justice to restore his creation and bring equity and, he, and where we will trade in our ashes for beauty. The fourth rider named Death, whom Hades followed, was given permission for a time to allow sin and death to take its natural toll. But there is another rider coming. He has not one crown, but many crowns. And he sees all. And his sword is truth. Revelation 19, 11 says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And his war will be the last war ever fought. It's the final battle against sin and death. His war brings an end to the four other riders and their influence, on his creation, so that as Paul says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Guys, sin and death will have its time, and they will be no more. This is our hope. This is our story. This is our final chapter, our telos. It's what it's leading us to as, as followers of the Lamb. And as ambassadors of this coming kingdom, we are to be conduits expressions of his reign, his peace, his justice, and his life until he comes. So guys, may that be true of us as followers and worshipers of the lamb today and this week and until he comes. Church, I love you. I can't wait to see you again. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you and may he give you peace. God bless you, church.